0: daunted life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Rules, more rules, really? Isn't life complicated enough, restricting enough without abstract rules that don't take our unique individual situations into account? And given that our brains are plastic and all develop differently based on our life experiences, why even expect that the rules might be helpful to us all? People don't clamor for rules, even in the Bible. As when Moses comes down the mountain after a long absence, bearing the tablets inscribed with Ten Commandments, and finds the children of Israel in revelry. They'd been Pharaoh's slaves and subject to his tyrannical regulations for 400 years, and after that Moses subjected them to the harsh desert wilderness for another 40 years to purify them of their slavishness. Now, free at last, they are unbridled and have lost all control as they dance wildly around an idol, a golden calf displaying all manner of corporal corruption. I've got some good news. And I've got some bad news, the lawgiver yells to them. Which do you want first? The good news, the hedonists reply. I got him from 15 commandments down to 10. Hallelujah, cries the unruly crowd. And the bad? Adultery is still in. So rules there will be, but please not too many. We are ambivalent about rules. Even we know that they are good for us. If we are spirited souls, if we have character, rules seem restrictive and affront to our sense of agency and our pride in working out our own lives. Why should we be judged according to another's rule? And judged we are. After all, God didn't give Moses the 10 suggestions. He gave commandments. And if I'm a free agent, my first reaction to a command might just be that nobody, not even God, tells me what to do, even if it's good for me. But the story of the golden calf also reminds us that without rules, we quickly become slaves to our passions. And there's nothing freeing about that. And the story suggests something more. Unchaperoned, and left to our own untutored judgment, we are quick to aim low and worship qualities that are beneath us. In this case, an artificial animal that brings out our own animal instincts in a completely unregulated way. The old Hebrew story makes it clear how the ancients felt about our prospects for civilized behavior in the absence of rules that seek to elevate our gaze and raise our standards. One neat thing about the Bible story is that it doesn't simply list its rules, as lawyers or legislators or administrators might. It embeds them in a dramatic tale that illustrates why we need them, thereby making them easier to understand. Similarly, in this book, Professor Peterson doesn't just propose his 12 rules. He tells stories too, bringing to bear his knowledge of many fields as he illustrates and explains why the best rules do not ultimately restrict us, but instead facilitate our goals and make for fuller, freer lives. All right, that is part of an excerpt from the foreword of the book 12 rules for life and antidote to chaos written by Jordan Peterson. And that part of the foreword was by a guy named Norman Dioge or Doji, I can't, I can't pronounce his last name is D O I D G E, whatever that says, but, uh, he's a colleague of Dr. Jordan Peterson's and he wrote a very, very fantastic uh, forward introduction to the 12 Rules for Life book. So obviously, we have talked about Jordan Peterson on this podcast before. Um, episode 16 of this podcast, just one podcast ago, I answered one of the questions about you know the people that I've gotten the most uh, influenced by in the last year or so. Uh, he was one of the three people in addition to Jocko Willing and Ben Shapiro. On episode nine, I did an entire episode about Jordan Peterson and his effect that he's having on people, especially young Christian men. But the book, 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos, if that sounds familiar, it's because it's literally like the number one book on the planet and has been for weeks and weeks and weeks. It's a number one national bestseller, a number one international bestseller. It's the number one most read and the number one most sold book on Amazon right now. Uh, This book was released at the end of January of 2018 of this year, and already there's around 2,000 reviews for the book on Amazon, and it's got a 4.7 rating out of five. Okay. Uh, this book, I just finished reading it about a month ago. This was the first book to bump another book from our 10 books, every modern Christian man should read list. Okay. And if you haven't seen that list, or if you're not familiar with it, if you go to our website, www.undaunted.life backslash book list, you will see that list there. And there's a hundred books from all kinds of different categories, everything from apologetics to philosophy, to health and fitness, to business and leadership. But this book was the very, very first book that I Actually, sent another book packing. Okay. So just an incredible, incredible book. It's really, it's already the early favorite for the best book that I've read of 2018. I've read, I think nine books up to this point in the year, and it's easily the best one I've read so far. And, uh, some of the ones I got coming up, I think are going to be fantastic, but it's going to be really, really hard to beat this one. So this episode, I want to go into a really a review of the 12 rules for life book by Jordan Peterson, but I don't want to do a normal review, kind of like how I've done book reviews in the past, where maybe I'm taking big things from every section and trying to kind of, Give you the prose and the narrative that's being presented in the book. Uh, I just want to kind of highlight some things for you and maybe make some things come to life for you in a special way. But let's start out right now by me actually listing the 12 rules. So, according to Jordan Peterson, these are the 12 rules for life that will serve as an antidote to chaos. Rule number one stand up straight with your shoulders back. Rule number two treat yourself like someone you are responsible for helping. Number three, Make friends with people who want the best for you. Number four, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. Rule number five, do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. Rule number six, set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. Rule number seven, pursue what is meaningful, not what is expedient. Rule number eight, tell the truth, or at least don't lie. Rule number nine, assume that the person you are listening to might know something you don't. Rule number 10, be precise in your speech. Rule number 11, do not bother children when they are skateboarding. And rule number 12, pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. Okay. Now, some of those may not make any sense, right? Some of those, you can pull some things out of it immediately. Like, you know, be precise in your speech and, and tell the truth and stand up straight with your shoulders back. Like that's fairly specific, but some of the other things don't really make a lot of sense when you just say them uh, immediately. Like, you know, pet a cat when you encounter one in the street, like that doesn't seem like you could build like a 40, 50 page chapter on the concept of how that's important. But I do want to encourage all of you to get this book and to read it. Okay. And I'm going to say that about a billion times in this podcast, but every single one of those chapters is so meticulously put together, but it's so digestible now. And if you've ever heard uh, Jordan Peterson speak before, you know, I've suggested his biblical series to you about the psychological significance of the biblical stories, especially in the old Testament. Um, it's, it's incredibly dense and somewhat hard to understand at times, but this book is incredibly, incredibly readable. Um, and that was the concern I had before I got this book. Cause I haven't read his other book called maps of meaning, but that one is like a clinical psychologist's wet dream. Like that's that book, right? So if you're a highly technical clinical person, that's like a really, really good book for you to read, but it's not as palatable for the general public. This book is palatable for just about anybody. Okay. So what I want to do here is I'm not going to do an exhaustive review of each rule. Okay. I want to leave that for you because I'm going to encourage you again, a million times, billion times to actually read the book for yourself. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to highlight four rules. Because there were four rules that I felt like were the most applicable to my listeners. And so I want to kind of pull some things out from the chapters where those rules are discussed and just just kind of leave it out there. And just to kind of give you forewarning, these are going to be all over the place. So the subject matter that he goes into, even within each individual rule, can really span all kinds of different subjects. But even the four rules, as I give them to you, they're all over the place. Right. But the thing is, is there's going to be something that, you know, gets your interest that kind of gets you going and may want to get you to the point where you want to research a little bit more. So the first rule that I want to go into and talk about is rule number two. And to remind you, that is treat yourself like someone you are responsible for helping. So, um, he, he goes into a lot of different subjects here. One of the first things he talks about is, you know, how interesting it is that people are actually better at administering medication regimens to their pets than they are to themselves, right? It's kind of like, you know, if you're going to treat yourself like someone that you're responsible for helping, you would think that you would need to take care of yourself mentally, physically, spiritually, like those types of things. But it's something that we don't really do. Um, he goes into a great amount of detail on the relationship between chaos and order and kind of how those things kind of coincide with one another. So chaos is kind of unexplored territory in your brain or in society. And order is kind of explored territory. Um, and there's a, there's a quote from here. And I'm going to do a lot of different quotes. So I'm just going to go, you know, say, hey, we're going to the book here. I'm not going to say quote, unquote. So just follow me whenever I'm doing these, okay? So here's a quote. Before the Twin Towers fell, that was order. Chaos manifested itself afterward. Everyone felt it. The very air became uncertain. What exactly was it that fell? Wrong question. What exactly remained standing? That was the issue at hand. Okay. So the relationship of chaos and order, uh, he goes into that and he also goes into how that relates to masculinity and femininity. He goes into the subject matter of good and evil, and he really goes deep in here. And so back to the book here. And even if we had defeated all the snakes that beset us from without reptilian and human alike, we would still not have been safe, nor are we now. We have seen the enemy, after all, and he is us. The snake inhabits each of our souls. This is the reason, as far as I can tell, for the strange Christian insistence made most explicit by John Milton that the snake in the Garden of Eden was also Satan, the spirit of evil itself. The importance of this symbi- or symbolic identification, its staggering brilliance, can hardly be overstated. It is through such millennia-long exercise of the imagination that the idea of abstracted moral concepts themselves, with all they entail, developed. Work Beyond Comprehension was invested in the idea of good and evil, and its surroundings. Dreamlike metaphor. The worst of all possible snakes is the eternal human proclivity for evil. The worst of all possible snakes is psychological, spiritual, personal, internal. No walls, however tall, will keep that out. Even if the fortress were thick enough, in principle, to keep everything bad whatsoever outside, it would immediately appear again within. As the great Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn insisted, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. So obviously you can see uh, there. there's a lot of religious connotations throughout a lot of his examples. Again, uh, what I said in episode nine and reiterated, I think a little bit in episode 16, is this is a guy that delves deep into subject matters of all types. And again, like I said, he's not a binary guy. who's just going to tell you, Hey, yeah, you know, you ask him if he believes in God, he, he just doesn't even understand what you mean by the question. And that doesn't mean he's a simpleton. It just means he thinks of things in, in a much higher level. Okay. But he even goes in to follow up on that, on the Bible and the fall. Okay. So back to the book, the entire Bible is structured so that everything after the fall, that is the history of Israel, the prophets, the coming of Christ is presented as a remedy for that fall a way out of evil. The beginning of conscious history, the rise of the state and all its pathologies of pride and rigidity, the emergence of great moral figures who try to set things right, culminating in the Messiah himself. That is all part of humanity's attempt, God willing, to set itself right. And what would that mean? Again, he posits a lot of different questions throughout this book that, you know, he doesn't actually answer. So at the end of that statement, you know, and what would that mean? He doesn't really offer you an answer to that. Uh, And, I'm going to go into the best quote of the chapter. So in each of the rules I'm going to go over, I'm going to kind of tell you uh, the best quote I found from the chapter, but also a summary quote. So here is the best quote from the chapter for that second rule. And this really goes into kind of God and his standards. So here we go to the book. God says, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat something you weren't supposed to? And Adam in his wretchedness points right at Eve, his love, his partner, his soulmate and snitches on her. And then he blames God. He says, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave it to me and then I ate it. How pathetic and how accurate. The first woman made the first man self-conscious and resentful. The first man blamed the woman and then the first man blamed God. This is exactly how every spurned male feels to this day. First he feels small, in front of the potential object of his love, after she denigrates his reproductive suitability. Then he curses God for making her so bitchy, himself so useless if he has any sense, and being itself so deeply flawed. Then he turns to thoughts of revenge. How thoroughly contemptible and how utterly understandable. At least the woman has the serpent to blame, and it later turns out that the snake is Satan himself, unlikely as it seems. Thus we can understand and sympathize with Eve's error. She was deceived by the best. But Adam, no one forced his words from his mouth. I think this is such an incredible quote because we've heard a lot of different people talk about the creation story. If you go to any church on the planet, you're going to get some Genesis one love in your life and, you know, go on through Genesis two and three. But, but really we focus on Adam. Obviously we focus on how Adam pointed out his wife and pointed at God and didn't take any responsibility. I mean, Jocko Willink would call that extreme ownership, right? Adam did not take that. The first man did not take that. And it took Jesus basically taking care of the first man's sin, generations later uh, to really cover that up. Um, And a summary quote to kind of wrap up this chapter is this. So back to the book. Don't underestimate the power of vision and direction. These are irresistible forces able to transform what might appear to be unconquerable obstacles into traversable pathways and expanding opportunities. Strengthen the individual. Start with yourself. Take care of yourself. Define who you are. Refine your personality. Choose your destination and articulate your being. As the great 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche so brilliantly noted, he whose life has a why can bear almost any how. Rule number two, treat yourself like someone you are responsible for helping. All right, so let's go into rule three. Make friends with people who want the best for you. Okay, so in this one, the beginning of this chapter, I remember highlighting this because He's, he's kind of a technical guy, but he really is an incredibly talented writer. He displays his incredible prose skills uh, and his narrative skills with just a basic description of what growing up in like way northern Alberta to Canada was. I think he said where he grew up, you know, the railroad ended about 15 or 16 miles north of their town. So they're in way the hell up there, Canada, right? So when the winter time, you're looking at six hours of sunlight and you know, 30 below zero temperatures. That's kind of what you're looking for, right? Um, and in this chapter, in it, going into this rule, he talks about the ability to help people versus helping yourself. So to the book, but a villain who despairs of his villainy has not become a hero. A hero is something positive, not just the absence of evil, but Christ himself, you might object, befriended tax collectors and prostitutes. How dare I cast aspersions on the motives of those who are trying to help? But Christ was the archetypal perfect man, and you're you. How do you know that your attempts to pull someone up won't instead bring them or you further down? I think this is an incredible thing for us to think about, guys. How many times have we been put in a situation where we were helping somebody help, and we ended up getting pulled down? That happens a lot. You might've been the douchebag that was pulling somebody down at some point, right? And you can see that in yourself and you actually have enough personal awareness to where you see that you've done that to other people. Um, And he really talks more in this section about how you can't help people that don't want help. It made me think of uh, a guy I went to college with. Uh, I won't, won't say his name here on the podcast, but he went to college with me at the University of Central Oklahoma and has since become homeless. And he's been homeless for, I mean, goodness, six, seven, eight years, maybe longer. And he's homeless, but he's in my city. And I've tried every time I've seen him, I've tried to help him. I've tried to get him to come home with us, to stay with us. I've tried to get him uh, to let me buy him food. I've taken him supplies before, you know, new shoes, you know, new shirt, like uh, toothpaste, you know, just basic things. I just had it sitting in my truck waiting for the next time that I saw him. And there are times where I'll see him once every couple of weeks. And there's times where I see him just two or three times in a year. But this is somebody that I can't help. This is something I just have, someone that I just have to pray for. I can't just throw them over my shoulder or toss them in the back of the truck and drive them home. It's it's not really going to help them. So let's go into the best quote of the chapter. So here we go back to the book. Here's something to consider. If you have a friend whose friendship you wouldn't recommend to your sister or your father or your son, why would you have such a friend for yourself? You might say out of loyalty. Well, loyalty is not identical to stupidity. Loyalty must be negotiated fairly and honestly. Friendship is a reciprocal arrangement. You are not morally obliged to support someone who is making the world a worse place. Quite the opposite. You should choose people who want things to be better, not worse. It's a good thing, not a selfish thing, to choose people who are good for you. It's appropriate and praiseworthy to associate with people whose lives would be improved if they saw your life improve. If you surround yourself with people who support your upward aim, they will not tolerate your cynicism and destructiveness. They will instead encourage you when you do good for yourself and others and punish you carefully when you do not. This will help bolster your resolve to do what you should do in the most appropriate and careful manner. People who are not aiming up will do the opposite. They will offer a former smoker a cigarette and a former alcoholic a beer. They will be jealous when you succeed or do something pristine. They will withdraw their presence or support or actively punish you for it. They will override your accomplishment with a past action, real or imaginary, of their own. Maybe they are trying to test you, to see if your resolve is real, to see if you are genuine. But mostly, they are dragging you down because your new improvements cast their faults in an even, dimmer light. I think that's a fantastic quote. Again, I mean, just a great, great lesson for all of us to learn. And here's a summary quote that kind of wraps up this rule here. Don't think that is easier to surround yourself with good, healthy people than with bad, unhealthy people. It's not. A good, healthy person is an ideal. It requires strength and daring to stand up near such a person. Have some humility. Have some courage. Use your judgment and protect yourself from too uncritical, passionate, and pity. So that's rule number three. Make friends with people who want the best for you. Let's launch right into rule number four. Compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. So one of the first things he talks about is kind of the reality of present circumstances. So to the book, we are not equal in ability or outcome and never will be a very small number of people produce very much of everything. The winners don't take all, but they take most. And the bottom is not a good place to be. People are unhappy at the bottom. They get sick there and remain unknown and unloved. They waste their lives there. They die there. In consequence, the self-denigrating voice in the minds of the people weaves a devastating tale. Life is a zero-sum game. Worthlessness is the default condition. What but willful blindness could possibly shelter people from such withering criticism? It is for such reasons that a whole generation of social psychologists recommended, quote, positive illusions, unquote, as the only reliable route to mental health. Their credo? Let a lie be your umbrella. A more dismal, wretched, pessimistic philosophy can hardly be imagined things are so terrible that only delusion can save you. This is something that I think is incredibly important. And I may really expand this in a, in a future podcast to kind of encapsulate this, but a lot of guys, you know, speaking to my audience here, a lot of guys kind of create that philosophy for themselves. They, they want to live under a lie because it's a lie that they feel like they can control. And if anyone's ever been caught in a lie, I certainly have been some big ones. Actually, those are things that you can't control. You think you have complete control over the darkness, but the darkness has you the entire time. It's the illusion that you've created for yourself. But he also talks about the concept of better, which I think is a a good way to look at that. So back to the book. Standards of better or worse are not illusory or unnecessary. If you hadn't decided that what you are doing right now was better than the alternatives, you wouldn't be doing it. The idea of a value-free choice is a contradiction in terms. Value judgments are a precondition for action. Furthermore, Every activity, once chosen, comes with its own internal standards of accomplishment. If something can be done at all, it can be done better or worse. To do anything at all is therefore to play a game with a defined and valued end, which can always be reached more or less efficiently and elegantly. Every game comes with its chance of success or failure. Differentials and quality are omnipresent. Furthermore, if there was no better or worse, nothing would be worth doing. There would be no value and therefore no meaning. Why make an effort if it doesn't improve anything? Meaning itself requires the difference between better and worse. How then can the voice of critical self-consciousness be stilled? Where are the flaws in the apparent impeccable logic of its message? Again, another another question he just leaves us there. Where are the flaws in the apparently impeccable logic of its message? So really, uh, there's a lot of things in life that kind of goes to that whole concept of uh, you know, everybody gets a trophy. You know, no kid is better than any other kid. You know, no person is more important than any other person. And, you know, in terms of the Imago Day, that's absolutely true. But in most settings in life, especially in a capitalist society, a Western society, that's, that's just not the case. Um, one thing he talks about, I really liked how he put this. He talked about the underworld trinity. So he talked about arrogance, deceit, and resentment. So that was a fairly interesting section. And then after that, he got into a section about self-reflection and also self-knowledge, which I see is kind of an issue for some guys. They kind of overinflate some of their value, or maybe some other guys go the other direction. They've kind of deflated their value. They have a very, very uh, poor self-reflection and self-knowledge. So let's go back to the book here. Does that mean that what we see is dependent on our religious beliefs? Yes. And what we don't see as well. You might object, but I'm an atheist. No, you're not. And if you want to understand this, you could read Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, perhaps the greatest novel ever written, in which the main character, Raskolnikov, (laughs) sorry, decides to take his atheism with true seriousness, commits what he has rationalized, and as a benevolent murderer, and pays the price. You're simply not an atheist in your actions, and it is your actions that most accurately reflect your deepest beliefs. Those that are implicit, embedded in your being, underneath your conscious apprehensions, and articulable attitudes and surface level self-knowledge. You can only find out what you actually believe rather than what you think you believe by watching how you act. You simply don't know what you believe before that. You are too complex to understand yourself. Now, I I gotta be honest, this one tripped me up a little bit and not just the Russian name that I tried to pronounce and absolutely slaughtered. Anyone that's out there that knows how to pronounce that name, go ahead and shoot me a, a video with that and let me know. But this is a really interesting concept to think of that we don't actually know who we are until we look at our actions. And I think from a Christian context, that's incredibly important for us to look at because some of us are Christian in name only. You know, we just basically operate with this idea. Well, I was born in Oklahoma, so that makes me a Christian or I'm an American. So that makes me a Christian when that really has no reflection on anything in terms of your a setup. With the creator God at all. And for a lot of us, when you think of just being Christian in name only, and that's where you kind of get your morality, some people don't operate with that paradigm in mind. They just don't do that. So it creates some issues there. Um, and he also made a little very short statement about kind of New Testament God people. I mean, you've sure heard a lot of people like that. You know, you have guys like Rob Bell, that ridiculous guy that just basically like, oh, hell couldn't possibly a guess, uh, exist if God is love, right? Uh, because apparently judgment's not a real thing. But it's people that are like, they got really uncomfortable feelings about the Old Testament God. So here, back to the book. There's been a price paid, however, for such plotting. And I mean that in both senses of the word, the tendency for modern people to think, When confronted with Jehovah, I would never believe in a God like that. But Old Testament God doesn't much care what modern people think. I thought that was an an incredible line because, I mean, that's kind of the deal. Just because how God has been portrayed to you, uh, it's just that that doesn't really change uh, your, basically your feelings don't change the reality of who God is, right? So if the Old Testament God doesn't make sense to you, it doesn't mean that God changed all of a sudden in the New Testament. Like it does. He's still the same God. He's the unmovable mover. So here's the best quote from the chapter, and this quote was basically talking about sandbagging and kind of success overall, which I think you guys will enjoy. So back to the book. It's also unlikely that you're playing only one game. You have a career and friends and family members and personal projects and artistic endeavors and athletic pursuits. You might consider judging your success success across all the games you play. Imagine that you are very good at some, middling at others, and terrible at the remainder. Perhaps that's how it should be. You might object, I should be winning at everything. But winning at everything might only mean that you're not doing anything new or difficult. You might be winning, but you're not growing. And growing might be the most important form of winning. Should victory in the present always take precedence over trajectory across time? I freaking love that quote. I think that is incredible. Again, this quote here You might be winning, but you're not growing. And growing might be the most important form of winning all of us have those pockets of life where we dominate, right? Maybe you're a really, really good golfer. Maybe you're a fantastic salesman. Uh, maybe you're a good preacher. Uh, there's just things that you do really well at. And then when someone suggests something for you to do that is outside of that normal skill set, you're like, ah, I think I'm out on that. You you just don't really know how to feel about that. And look, I I bring a lot of things back to jujitsu, but the same thing is true in jujitsu. Aside from the person who has basically done, you know, wrestling freestyle or greco or judo most of their life the transition into jujitsu for most people especially if they came from you know ball sports so baseball football basketball soccer those types of things it's not always a smooth transition it's just a completely different game and so some guys will try it and then they'll they'll be done after day one or week one or month one or something like that it's just way too difficult they're going to run back to the pitching green uh, they're gonna or putting green, whatever. They're, they're just going to run back to the pockets of life where they can dominate, to video games or whatever it is they can do, and they're not going to push themselves, but it's only when you push yourself that you grow. So the summary quote for this rule is very short, and so here it is. Attend to the day, but aim at the highest good. Rule number four, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. All right, guys, so the last rule I'm going to go over for you today is rule number 11. Do not bother children when they are skateboarding. Okay, so obviously this is one where you read the chapter title and you're like, what in the world is he talking about? I'm telling you guys, rule number 11, so this is that chapter of the book. This chapter is worth the entire book. Like, this is the most robust chapter. I don't know what it is in the paper version because I do all e-reading, but it was over 100 pages on my e-reader, um, this one chapter. It could have been sold by itself. I feel like if this was sold as a 100-page ebook, that it would have still done really, really well. This is an incredible, incredible chapter because it goes into so many different areas that are going to be very important, but also very interesting to a lot of you listening out there. So <clears throat> he kind of starts off, and this is where he gets the the title, or basically the description for this rule. And he was talking about these kids that were skateboarding. And so these are young kids and, you know, they're, they're trying to go down a rail and they're just constantly messing up. If you've seen any type of uh, street skateboarding videos, I mean, these guys are just bailing out and crashing all the freaking time. None of them are wearing helmets. They're not wearing pads. Like that's not the point. They're just basically out there to see who can do it. And he, he really puts it out there that, you know, how kids do dangerous things basically in search for competence, right? So they're doing this dangerous thing so they can become competent at it. So, I mean, I, I never really did the skateboard thing because I busted my tail once going down the driveway and I was like, Meh, I think I'm good on my own two feet. But I remember whenever I first tried to bunny hop on a bike, you know, a BMX bike when I was, you know, a little kid and I couldn't get it. I didn't know. I didn't understand like the mechanics of doing that move, but eventually I figured it out. It just kind of clicked one day and then it just became old hat. And so I could bunny hop really high. And that was just kind of one of those interesting things where it was just like, I was in search for competence and I was doing something dangerous. Uh, It wasn't terribly dangerous. I wasn't going off a mega ramp or something like that, but it was kind of one of those things that it was a dangerous endeavor and, you know, I crashed and, you know, I skinned up my, my shins and, you know, got my pedals stuck on my shins and all those different things. And, you know, it was kind of a a painful process, but then I became competent at it and didn't have to deal with that anymore. So one thing I really like about this book is it has a ton of uh, or sorry, this, this rule rather it has a ton of information about issues with boys. So kind of how boys are struggling. It talks about uh, higher education, a lot of different things, but I'm going to go into a really good quote, kind of talking about issues that are going on with boys. So it's a somewhat lengthy quote. So stick with me to the book. Boys are suffering in the modern world. They are more disobedient negatively or more independent positively than girls. And they suffer for this throughout their pre-university educational career. They are less agreeable, agreeableness being a personality trait associated with compassion, empathy, and avoidance of conflict, and less susceptible to anxiety and depression, at least after both sexes hit puberty. Boys' interests tilt towards things, girls' interests tilt towards people. Strikingly, these differences, strongly influenced by biological factors, are most pronounced in the Scandinavian societies where gender equality has been pushed hardest. This is the opposite of what would be expected by those who insist ever more loudly that gender is a social construct. It isn't. This isn't a debate. The data are in. Boys like competition and they don't like to obey, particular, particularly when they are adolescents. During that time, they are driven to escape their families and establish their own independent existence. There is little difference between doing that and challenging authority. Schools, which were set up in the late 1800s precisely to inculcate obedience, do not take kindly to provocative and daring behavior no matter how tough-minded and competent it might show a boy or a girl to be. Other factors play their role in the decline of boys. Girls will, for example, play boys' games. But boys are much more reluctant to play girls' games. This is in part because it is admirable for a girl to win when competing with a boy. It is also okay for her to lose to a boy. For a boy to beat a girl, however, it is often not okay. And just as often, it is even less okay for him to lose. Imagine that a boy and a girl, aged 9, get into a fight. Just for engaging, the boy is highly suspect. If he wins, he's pathetic. If he loses, well, his life might be well, as well be over. Beat up by a girl. Girls can win by winning in their own hierarchy, by being good at what girls value, as girls. They can add to this victory by winning in the boys' hierarchy. Boys, however, can only win by winning in the male hierarchy. They also lose status among girls and boys by being good at what girls value. It costs them in reputation among the boys and in attractiveness among the girls. Girls aren't attracted to boys who are their friends, even though they might like them, whatever that means. They are attracted to boys who win status contests with other boys. If you're male, however, you can't just hammer a female as hard as you would a male. Boys can't, won't, play truly competitive games with girls. It isn't clear how they can win. As the game turns into a girls' game, therefore, the boys leave. Are the universities, particularly the humanities, about to become a girls' game? Is that what we want? The situation in the universities and in educational institutions in general is far more problematic than the basic statistical statistics indicate. If you eliminate the so-called STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics programs, excluding psychology, the female-male ratio is even more skewed. Almost 80% of students majoring in the fields of healthcare, public administration, psychology, and education, which comprise one quarter of all degrees, are female. The disparity is rapidly increasing. At this rate, there will be very few men in most university disciplines in 15 years. This is not good news for men. It might even be catastrophic news for men, but it's also not good news for women. So he wraps up this section, which go by going into many issues for women and men in the workforce, kind of issues with education of young boys overall and problems at universities and kind of what political correctness has done. But this is such an important thing for all of us to be thinking about because he posits that within the next decade or two. So, you know, he said 15 years. So let's say two decades, right? that we're going to see men basically disappear from universities. Now he's talking mainly within administration and the professorial routes, but the thing about it is, is we're already seeing that happening even in the student areas, right? Like there are way more female college students. There's way more females getting master's degrees, advanced degrees, and it's, it would never used to be that way. And there's really a lot that's exacerbating that. And it's not really going in the other, excuse me, in the other direction. He also talks about kind of the, the quote unquote evil patriarchy. That's kind of everybody's best punching bag thing now where he talks about the patriarchy. So back to the book, consider this as well in regard to oppression, any hierarchy creates winners and losers. The winners are of course, more likely to justify the hierarchy and the losers to criticize it. But the collective pursuit of any valued goal produces a hierarchy as some will be better and some will be worse at that pursuit, no matter what it is. and It is the pursuit of goals that, in large part, lends itself, lends life to its sustaining meaning. We experience almost all the emotions that make life deep and engaging as a consequence of moving successfully towards something deeply desired and valued. The price we pay for that involvement is the inevitable creation of hierarchies of success, while the inevitable consequence is difference in outcome. Absolute equality would therefore require the sacrifice of value itself, and then there would be nothing worth living for. We might instead note with gratitude that a complex, sophisticated culture allows for many games and many successful players, and that a well-structured culture allows the individuals to compo- that compose it to play and to win, in many different fashions. It is also perverse to consider culture the creation of men. Culture is symbolically, archetypally, and mythically male. That's partly why the idea of, quote, the patriarchy, unquote, is so easily swallowed. But it is certainly the creation of humankind, not the creation of men, let alone white men, who nonetheless contributed their fair share. European culture has only been dominant to the degree that it is dominant at all for about 400 years. On the time scale of cultural evolution, which is to be measured at minimum in thousands of years, such a time span barely registers. Furthermore, even if women contributed nothing substantial to art, literature, and sciences prior to the 1960s with the feminist revolution, which is not something I believe, Then the role they played raising children and working on the farms was still instrumental in raising boys and freeing up men, a very few men, so that humanity could propagate itself and strive forward. So obviously getting a little bit political, kind of going into this whole kind of first, second, third wave feminism type of thing and kind of where people are just attacking the patriarchy. So goes into that in this rule. He even delves down into Marxism and kind of what intellectual utopians the kind of think and kind of how they view the world but one thing I think is good for us to look at he also talked about as a man basically pulling your weight so back to the book men enforce a code of behavior on each other when working together do your work pull your weight stay awake and pay attention don't whine or be touchy stand up for your friends don't suck up and don't snitch don't be a slave to stupid rules don't in the immortal world words of Arnold Schwarzenegger be a girly man don't be dependent at all ever period The harassment that is part of acceptance on the working crew is a test. Are you tough, entertaining, competent, and reliable? If not, go away. Simple as that. We don't need to feel sorry for you. We don't want to put up with your narcissism, and we don't want to do your work. So, for a lot of guys, even if you feel like you're a very advanced, very nuanced person, you have all these different layers to your personality. This is something that we find out to be true. This is not just you know basically working on a you know construction crew or something like that that you see something like this. We are constantly comparing ourselves to other guys, and especially if we're in a team full of other guys, we want them to pull their weight. For all my athletes out there, if you played uh, professional, collegiate, or, or high school athletics of something some kind, and you are playing on an all guys team which would be most of you, right? You want guys to pull their weight. Now, there are times whenever things go wrong, you make a mistake, you know, you strike out, you know, you drop a pass, whatever the thing may be. But th- those are the things that your, your teammates can choose to kind of come behind you and take care of business. But if you're striking out and dropping passes and you're also screwing off in practice, it's going to be an issue and the, the community is going to kind of deal with you on that. So the best quote of the chapter I want to get in here, um, it's a chapter or it's really a, a quote in a section that talks about what women want. Right And he doesn't go like full-on into the you know the psychology of the woman and all the things in relationships, but I thought that this was incredibly, incredibly potent, so back to the book. It is to women's clear advantage that men do not happily put up with dependency among themselves. Part of the reason that so many a working-class woman does not marry now, as we have alluded to, is because she does not want to look after a man struggling for employment as well as her children. And fair enough. A woman should look after her children, although that is not all she should do. And a man should look after a woman and children, although that is not all he should do. But a woman should not look after a man, because she must look after her children. And a man should not be a child. This means that he must not be dependent. This is one of the reasons that men have little patience for dependent men. And let us not forget, wicked women may produce dependent sons, May support and even marry dependent men, but awake and conscious women want an awake and conscious partner. Men have to toughen up. Men demand it, and women want it, even though they may not approve of the harsh and contemptuous attitude that is part and parcel of the socially demanding process that fosters and then enforces that toughness. Some women don't like losing their baby boys, so they keep them forever. Some women don't like men and would rather have a submissive mate, even if he is useless. This also provides them with plenty to feel sorry for themselves about as well. The pleasures of such self-pity should not be underestimated. Men toughen up by pushing themselves and by pushing each other. That last statement right there, that's where it is, guys. Men toughen up by pushing themselves and by pushing each other. That is why Undaunted Life in a lot of ways is here. We talk a lot about kind of what the church has done to pussify men and all the things that society has done to kind of push men to the fringes. But guys, when you toughen up the most is when you're pushing others and when others are pushing you, right? That's when it happens. That's why with Undaunted Life, that's why we do these private excursions, right? That's why we get guys out into the woods. We get them competing. We get them talking about certain things. We get them tired. We get them exhausted. And we kind of put them through the ringer for a weekend because that's when you're toughening yourself up the most. That's when you are cultivating your manly resilience at, at the largest clip and at the biggest level, right? So that's why we do it in that form and in that fashion because it's incredibly, incredibly important to do that. So the summary quote for this rule is this. So back to the book. If they're healthy, women don't want boys. They want men. They want someone to contend with, someone to grapple with. If they're tough, they want someone tougher. If they're smart, they want someone smarter. They desire someone who brings to the table something they can't already provide. This often makes it hard for tough, smart, attractive women to find mates. There just aren't that many men around who can outclass them enough to be considered desirable who are higher, as one research publication put it, in income, education, self-confidence, intelligence, dominance, and social position. The spirit that interferes when boys are trying to become men is, therefore, no more friend to woman than it is to man. It will object just as vociferously and self-righteously. You can't do it. It's too dangerous when little girls try to stand their own, on their own two feet. It negates consciousness. It's anti-human, desirous of failure, jealous, resentful, and destructive. No one truly on the side of humanity would ally himself or herself with such a thing. No one aiming at moving up would allow him or herself to become possessed by such a thing. And if you think tough men are dangerous, wait until you see what weak men are capable of. Rule number 11, leave children alone when they are skateboarding. Okay, guys, as we kind of wrap up uh, my review of this book, I want to give you the three reasons, in my opinion, why every modern Christian man should read the 12 rules for life and antidote for chaos. So reason number one is relevance. Guys, this book is the number one book in the world right now. Like it's number one all over the place, right? There's plenty of people talking about it. So if you're at work or you're, you're doing things in any type of circle where there are guys that do read things, uh, it's going to come up. It kind of has to come up right now. I mean, he's traveling around the country. He's kind of going on a sold out tour where he's talking about his book to a, lot of to, to a lot of different people. So it's not, you know, a hyperbole to say that this is a cultural phenomenon. Like this is an incredibly, incredibly important book. So reason number one why you should read this book is its relevance. Reason number two is how important it is. So importance, right? This will be one of the most important books that you read. And I don't mean this year. <laughs> I mean, in general, and, and I'm not being exaggerative. I, I truly, truly mean it. A good buddy of mine uh, who who's read the book and he's about to take a group of guys through the reading of this book. He said, this is the new seven habits of highly effective people, Right you know the the covey book that is on our 100 uh, books list right uh that book's kind of old it's pretty old school especially if you've if you've ever seen him talk before it's kind of it's really really old school type of a thing but this is such an important book and the content through which and I hope you kind of got that through some of the things that I laid out there it's incredibly relevant right that's what we talked about but the importance of it is incredibly big as well and the third reason why I think everybody should read this book all christian men modern christian men, is timing so the timing of the stuff he's talking about in the book is so specific to where we're at right now. Okay, so we are in a time right now. We're living through a time in 2018 of tremendous political division in our country. Uh, it's a time of cultural angst. We don't really know what direction the culture is going. It's getting way left, and there's kind of pockets that are going way right. It's a it's a time of spiritual persecution, and I, and. Again, I've talked about this a lot. Someone not liking your scripture post on Facebook or putting a snide comment is not really persecution, right? We have people getting their heads freaking chopped off by Muslims in the in the Middle East, so let's just kind of chill out on the persecution language. But it is a time of kind of spiritual persecution in the sense that we, we again, don't know what direction we're going. And we don't know if it's going to get better for Christians in the West or worse. And it's also, it's a time of extreme pluralism, Right. No one knows which way is up and they can't say with any definitive nature that this is good or that's bad. They just can't do that. So the contents of this book and these 12 rules are things that you can put into practice in your life immediately. And guys, like I said, I I picked out four rules out of the 12. I picked out a third of them to share with you. They're all money, but they're all going to hit you in different ways. But there's just, there's really not a logical uh out, it wouldn't be a logical outcome for you to read this book and not get anything from any of the 12 rules. Like there's going to be something for you to be able to immediately implement in your life that's going to help you be a better person. Okay? So guys, before we let you go, we're going to do a quick resilience boost. So as you know by now, we are a men's ministry and our mission is cultivating manly resilience, and specifically we do that by providing content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So today is a mental resilience day, and the suggestion is obviously for the billionth time, read this book. <laughs> pick up this book and read it. And one thing I would suggest for you to do is if you do have a men's group, maybe this is a, a regular men's group that you meet with through a ministry of some kind or through the church. Maybe you have a, a men's Bible study that you do or a men's Sunday school, or maybe you don't have that in any formal fashion, but you need an excuse to get, get a group of guys together, get this book and read it, read it together. Right. And when guys look, like, these chapters are long, just shut up. Tell them to shut up, punch them in the face, do whatever you need to do. Read one chapter a week and then come together and talk about it so there's a group that I, I do on Sunday nights. So outside of my normal jujitsu training, this is kind of a, a Sunday night men's group where we have a book. We, uh, we read it on our own. We come together and kind of discuss what we got from that chat, that chapter, or from the section that we were reading at that time. And then we do, you know, a Metcon workout sometime. And then we train a little bit of no nogi jujitsu. So you can do that on your own. Like the weather's you know, getting better. Uh, especially here in the next couple of months so get outside and, and you know play I don't care whatever you want to do play frisbee golf play a round of actual golf throw the football around get a softball team together where you talk in the parking lot instead of drinking really crappy beer from the from the gas station you're, you're talking about this book just figures a way out uh, figure out some way to get with other guys to discuss the contents of this book I literally could not recommend it higher to you. Okay, guys. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. We always appreciate it. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play and refer your friends to listen and share all this on social media. If we deserve a five-star rating, guys, that's how this podcast is going to continue to grow and reach more people. So please leave us a five-star review. Again, just a reminder, I am booking speaking engagements for 2018. So if you want me to come speak to your church or your ministry or your Sunday school or your business or your camp or anything like that, you can reach me by info at undaunted.life. Again, info at undaunted.life. And our website is www.undaunted.life. And you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at undauntedlife and facebook.com backslash Life. You can check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. You just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is their song King of Sorrow, which is off their latest record entitled Phantom Anthem. And the links to all this are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.